Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello and welcome to Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. And welcome to our Season 5 Summit. If you're joining us for the first time, our Summit episodes succinctly summarize our season through four different lenses. Visitorship, environment, wildlife, and hiking trails as well as history. Our summit on visitorship examines crowdedness, accessibility, location to civilization, and a whole manner of things you might be curious about when you're visiting one of these parks. Our summit episode on history examines the past and present issues going on in the park from many perspectives, specifically that of the indigenous people that originally called the stolen parkland their home. And our hiking trails summit is all about the hikes we took throughout this season, season five, in each of the parks we visited. This summit is all about environment, which in essence is the draw of the national parks, their natural splendor. Whether you're traversing a wilderness route into Black Canyon of the Gunnison, taking in the alpine blooms of Mount Rainier, or hiking through a dormant volcanic crater in Haleakala National Park, chances are you're there to see the landscape and its majesty. And much of the time, that includes the wildlife of the park, be it the flora or the fauna. We could play two truths and a lie with that list you just made. Yeah, Two of them right we there. have done as of right now. Mm-hmm. Though after next week, that may be three truths. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a disturbing trend in the last year has been article after article about people approaching wildlife in the national parks or touching wildlife in the national parks. And this is so bad for so many reasons. So before we dive in and chat all about the parks from season five, their wildlife and their environments, we feel it pretty important to address what it is to be a visitor in a national park space specifically when it comes to wildlife. If you have listened to our episodes before, even as recently as our Trail Mix episode titled Poo Poo Pee Pee from this season, you know that we are proponents of the seven leave no trace principles, even though there needs to be some update to the part about human waste with crystals. If you're unfamiliar with the seven leave no trace principles, they are guidelines for exploring and enjoying outdoor spaces, specifically our public lands. These include planning ahead and preparing, traveling and camping on durable surfaces, disposing of waste properly, minimizing campfire impacts, something we will be chatting more about in a future season, being considerate of others, leaving what you find, and respecting wildlife. If you want a more in-depth 
dive on these principles, listen to our Trail Mix episode from the end of season three titled National Park Week, The Seven Leave No Trace, The Seven Leave No Trace Principles, or visit lnt.org. In the meantime, let's summarize two principles that relate very much to the environment of the parks. Leave what you find and respect wildlife. Now, a national park space is different from many public outdoor spaces in that it is illegal to willingly take anything from these spaces. That is not to say that you should be pilfering from other outdoor natural spaces either, but sites managed by the MPS, be it a national park, national monument, or national military park, have specific rules against this. In fact, the Antiquities Act of 1906, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990, and the Paleontological Resources Preservation Act of 2009 all have provisions regarding not taking things from these spaces. The Antiquities Act, which helped to designate many of the park spaces in the NPS, was specifically created to stop theft and excavation of artifacts that had historic or scientific value to the nation. The Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act requires federal agencies and museums to return certain Native American items unless they can prove that they have a right to possess the objects. The Paleontological Resources Preservation Act addresses the management, collection, and curation of paleontological resources from federal lands using scientific principles and expertise, including collection in accordance with permits, curation in an approved repository, and maintenance of confidentiality of specific locality data. Now, if it sounds like these three acts speak only to objects of archaeological or paleontological value, on the surface it looks that way. But when we think about the objects within the park, the rocks, the trees, the plants, these all have scientific value, especially when it comes to understanding the park spaces and studying the way in which the spaces change over time. (coughs) Climate change. Mike's obvious doom and gloom aside, he's absolutely right. Also, Mike wrote that for himself. (laughs) He wrote that. He scripted this section of the episode. And I want you to know that he wrote that, everyone. Wow. For someone else to say, particularly for me to say. Validate me. I mean, that is, that's what you scream all day. Uh. I'm going to read it again so people can get a sense of this. Mike's obvious doom and gloom aside, he's absolutely right, but also on a much smaller scale too, as understanding the habitat of the park better helps scientists to understand its denizens and how they respond to their habitat and how changes to the habitat exact changes on the species found within the park. We all know the adage of a butterfly flapping its wings in one part of the world causing a hurricane in another. And at the core of this message, it's that small change adds up to have a big impact. So while pocketing a rock or taking taking a leaf from a national park space may seem like a drop in the bucket, if everyone were to do that, that bucket wouldn't only be full, it would be overflowing. And the splendor of the park and part of the reason it was preserved may not be as lustrous anymore. So the long and short of it is, don't take anything from a park space, even its animals. This brings us to a more disturbing trend that we have seen in the last few years, but specifically in the last few months in general, touching wildlife. Now, perhaps people are uneducated to the fact, but y'all, never approach or touch a wild animal. Okay, so there are a litany of reasons why this is the case, but mostly it boils down to the fact that they are wild and we are guests in their habitat. Wild animals are not domesticated and therefore they are not prepared for what humans bring to the equation. Approaching or touching a wild animal isn't only dangerous to you, but dangerous to the animal. Along with potential exposure to the animal of chemicals that are harmful or toxic to them, through low 
lotions, bug sprays, perfumes, makeup. Animals also potentially carry with them diseases or pests that we as humans are not prepared to deal with either. Another important reason to not touch wildlife is because it can stress the animals out, even to the point of death. Because human touch isn't in their typical repertoire of experiences, animals can become extremely anxious from the experience. As if these reasons aren't bad enough, touching animals may cause them to be ostracized from the herd, which could lead to euthanization. So let's break this down. So most recently, there have been three incidents that yes. have been fairly big news. Um, were within, they all in Yellowstone? Um, one was in Yellowstone. I think they might have been all in Yellowstone. All right. All three of these, which not to like give attention to it, but also, yeah, there's a pretty great Instagram handle called Tourons of Yellowstone. And we honestly, like this because it, just, it calls out bad behavior. It publicly shames people for being terrible with wildlife yes. or being terrible, generally speaking, yes. in, in the natural park spaces. spaces. Yeah. And like stepping in hot springs that you shouldn't be and geysers. And yeah. Anyway, the first of these events was the man from Hawaii who basically tried to aid a bison calf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I have to say, right. My favorite area to go to is the comment section whenever like that happens. That happens because, ooh, girl, people get divided. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, right? Okay. The reason this is bad, right, is because so this guy, whether he was helping this bison calf or whether he was picking it up to take a photo with it, regardless, he touched it. Touching that bison calf now puts his scent on that bison, that baby bison, who will now be ostracized from its herd because that herd will not recognize that. Mm -hmm. That herd will say, that is not one of ours yeah. somebody else's because they smell of human now yeah and so yeah and then that and then because of that that is the reason euthanization. for the euthanization yeah. now all these people in the comment section but what if he was trying to help the bison what if it was drowning what if it was blah 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 okay that's nature folks it's nature girl uh, sometimes the water gets you and that's it yeah right also like we cannot interfere because we are not the people who are trained if there is an interference to be needed mm-hmm. i mean if we feel like some some like like a human has to intervene in a circumstance with an animal you cannot in any way take that on yourself to do that intervention no. that's when you go talk to a trained park ranger who's going to get the people needed to intervene or at least assess the situation assist to see if the situation but you stepping in I like I just like I need to say this and I'm not saying that this is what this man was doing but I do have friends who I mean I can think of one friend in particular who literally like every time I go to her house she's got a different cat there she's like oh I just found it outside and I it needed a home and blah blah blah. and I'm like I barely see any cats outside I don't know how you in the last six months have found 10 different ones you know what I mean that's got them all (laughs) because she's got them all apparently they find her Mm -hmm. I guess But that kind of thing, that sort of like, oh, well, I have this special connection with animals, like, um, like, blah, blah, blah. If you feel like you have a special connection with animals, I guarantee you the animals you're talking about are domesticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about some kind of dog or some kind of cat or maybe a domesticated rabbit or something like that. But like, um, no, you are not a bison buffalo whisperer. No. In any way at all. No. 
And um, a wild animal is never to be interacted with or touched. No. And that goes for like wild animals in your community. Don't go pick up a raccoon. No. Don't go pick up a rabbit that's hopping through your yard. Do not do that. Yeah. That does not help them. No. No. Other instances in Yellowstone most recently were people who, (laughs) this was wild to me, put a buffalo calf, a bison calf, into their car and then drove it to a local police station. No. Because they believed the bison to be alone and they didn't want it to be alone. The other instance too, because it's all idiocy, is people getting way too close to um, elk calves within the park and the elk mother like chasing people away to defend them. Now, if you're in the Mammoth Hot Springs section of the park of Yellowstone, of Yellowstone, elk are kind of everywhere. They are are everywhere. everywhere. And you stay away from them. Listen, the park ranger in Glacier said it best. You know better. Yeah. Elk doesn't know better. You got to get yourself out of Dodge. Right. Yeah. Because um, regardless if there are buildings, regardless if there's a parking lot and parking spaces, if it's suddenly a restaurant, the deal is that this is still their space. Yeah. The animal space. Yeah. We happen to build some structures in here. Yeah. That was us invading their space. Yeah. Yeah. And invading the space of the humans that lived before it and stealing it and yeah. taking it from them. This is what I mean. Like, oh, this baby bison, we didn't want it to be alone. Yeah. Um, I'm sure these are lovely people and very well-intentioned, wonderful people, right? And I'm not trying to say that they're bad people. So it wasn't a bison calf that they drove to the police station. It was an elk calf. Mm-hmm. And um, it did run out into the forest. Right. So who knows what the situation is exactly. with this little elk calf. But yeah. um, traumatized... Yeah. Certainly. Sure. That elk calf is traumatized. Yeah. I'm just like, I think a lot of people try to find purpose through helping. And in that way, they like, oh, I'm getting into it here, but it doesn't matter. I'm doing it. They they try to create circumstances where they can be helpful. Mm. And I'm not saying that there weren't dire circumstances here, but like not interacting with that elk calf way more helpful absolutely to that elk calf than putting it in your car or touching it at all so while not all of these people are coming from a place of complete asshattery they are still in the absolute wrong people may argue that they were trying to be a help to the animal or animals in some cases but the fact remains that you don't touch wildlife as cruel as it may seem when we see a wild animal struggle in nature we cannot and should not its savior. The rule of thumb of nature documentarians should stand in that even when an animal is in distress, you don't step in to help it. Nature ultimately must take its course, as cruel as that might be. And in the words of Yellow Jacket Season 2, <laughs> the wilderness chooses. <laughs> Also, just a fun fact to remember, federal regulations require that people stay at least 25 yards away from wildlife such as elk, bison, and deer, and at least 100 yards away from bears and wolves. So even that way too close selfie is against the law. Keep your distance and don't touch wildlife. Unfortunate news aside, there are plenty of people who visit the parks every year who can manage to keep their hands to themselves and not approach wildlife within the parks. We were fortunate enough to visit four parks this season that really had a lot going on for them as far as wildlife and environment. Not that this isn't the case for most parks we have been to, but these four stood out in their own special ways. Before we get started, we'd like to acknowledge that while hiking in Indiana Dunes National Park, we are on the traditional and stolen lands of the Kickapoo, Peoria, Kaskaskia, Potawatomi, and Miamia people. While we were in Theodore Roosevelt, 
Roosevelt National Park, we were on the traditional and stolen land of the Montan, Hidatsta, Arikara, Crow, and many other indigenous people. While in Badlands National Park, we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Oglala Lakota, Cheyenne, Ocheti Shikowin, and Minikoju people. And while in the New River Gorge National Park, we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Manitan, Tupelo, and Yuchi people. Speaking of New River Gorge National Park, let's turn our attention there first. This is the most floristically diverse gorge in the southern and central Appalachian range. That's what they call me. <laughs> floristically diverge. Diverse. diverse. Um, visiting New River Gorge means being able to see an incredible array of plants and trees. A lot of this is due in part to the moisture distribution from the river to the rim of the gorge. This park is known for its rhododendron, which flourish because of the park's more acidic soil. These plants thrive in ravines and shaded parts of the range within the park. Where did we see rhododendron? We saw them a lot, Mm -hmm. but they there were quite a bit of them on Long Point Trail Mm -hmm. because it was like that kind of like final section. I feel like final section it had just sort of like tunnels, tunnel of rhododendron. Mm -hmm. There was was also on the Castle Rock Trail underneath the uh, Canyon Rim Trail in the Grandview section. Oh, totally. There were definitely some. Yeah, they were all hiding in that shadow there. Mm -hmm. Um, It definitely felt like I always remember. Even just I don't think they were rhododendron in Hawaii, but when we were in like Wilmaic canyon and hiking we were through these sort of just like it felt like these bored tunnels oh, yeah. um, and so it was really really neat and is very very beautiful rhododendrons tend to bloom from may through july at the gorge the types included within the park include the great rhododendron which is the state flower and the catawba rhododendron mountain laurel which sometimes gets confused with rhododendron are also in abundance within the park While trees like oak and maple dominate the landscapes of the forest here, hemlocks and ash trees, while still present in limited numbers, used to share the wealth of the forest as well. The range of the ash tree is from Nova Scotia to Florida and as far west as Minnesota and eastern Texas. However, the ash tree has a nemesis, the emerald green ash borer, native to Asia. The ash borer was first discovered in Michigan in 2002 and has wreaked havoc on the ash tree population of the U.S. since. New River Gorge National Park is no exception. The larvae of the ash borer, which are laid inside the tree, tunnel into areas of the tree responsible for moving water and sugars up and down the trunk, and this eventually takes its toll on the tree. The hemlock trees within the park also have their own nemesis, the hemlock woolly adelgid, which almost looks like cotton strewn amongst the branches of the hemlock. This invasive pest sucks the sap from the hemlocks and spruce trees and wreaks its own sort of havoc on the trees. That being said, despite it all, the hemlocks of the park are holding on strong. Without shock, much of the issues plaguing the flora within the park, from invasive plants to invasive insect species, relate back to climate change, as the milder winters have allowed these pests to have higher survival rate and larger and larger numbers. When we turn our attention to the wildlife of the park, we find a wide array, both of endemic animals and transitory ones. New River Gorge is uniquely positioned so that many animals, more commonly found in the north, find the park at the edge of its southern range, and vice versa for animals typically found in the south, where the park is the edge of its northern range. Within the park, you may find common mammals like groundhog, raccoon, opossum, gray and fox squirrels, chipmunks, and white-tailed deer, but over 65 species of mammals can be found in the park in total. When it comes to birding, this park is a birder's paradise, as it is nestled in a major migratory zone for many birds. This includes birds of prey like hawks, bald eagles, and peregrine falcons. In fact, New River Gorge was a park that was heavily 
responsible for the reintroduction of peregrine falcons to the eastern U.S. in a very successful way. The peregrine falcon population was in decline in the 1950s because of pesticide use, which caused maladies in eggshell formation and led to failures within the population. While the species was listed as endangered through 1999, recovery efforts began to take hold, helping to boost the population. In New River Gorge, a process known as hacking went into effect. Essentially, birds were taken from nests which were built on bridges in Virginia, New Jersey, and Maryland. These bridge-built nests also led to great mortality rates amongst bird populations because of either collisions with cars or fledgling from the nest before ready and meeting demise in watery graves. So sad. Hacking allowed for simulated nest boxes to be created within New River Gorge, which would help to raise the birds until they were ready to leave the nest. Birds would be fed without human intervention and would allow them to grow strong prior to their readiness to leave the nest and hunt on their own. So we saw, we didn't actually see, did they have a box for this? I know we saw a really in-depth sign about hacking when we were on the Canyon Rim Trail or the Grandview Rim Trail. I can't remember if there was actually a box there, but this is where we first learned about this. And it's pretty spectacular that this was such a like important zone for oh, the yeah. reintroduction and repopulation of, um, of certain bird species. Yeah, yeah. yeah. specifically totally. falcons. Yeah. This is, as we were talking about earlier, human intervention. This is technically a form of human intervention. Absolutely. But these are people who are trained, Yep, know how to do this in a way that still like allows those birds to feed themselves and sets them up in a natural space to right. thrive yep. versus putting them in the backseat of their cars. Exactly. As far as reptiles, amphibians, and fish go, there are at least 40 species of reptiles, including two venomous types of snakes, the copperhead and timber rattlesnake. There are 89 different types of fish, 46 of which are native, in a river that is very productive breeding ground for fish. And there are at least 50 species of amphibians, of which the hellbender, also known as the Allegheny alligator, are of particular interest to biologists, especially when it comes to the health of the stream and tributary habitats. Unsurprisingly, these aquatic dwelling creatures also face a great threat as the climate shifts because the river has such a rich diversity of hydrological zones that are particular to specific species. The shifting climate will likely make these areas less hospitable in the future. Now let's move to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, located in the land also known as North Dakota. When it comes to wildlife, Theodore Roosevelt National Park is one of the most famous parks for wildlife, particularly due to how abundant the wildlife is to visitors. When driving the Park Loop Road in the South Unit, and we know this because we did this on our very first day there, it is possible to see prairie dogs, buffalo, wild horses, pronghorns, and golden eagles. Do go listen to our trail mix on the wildlife of Theodore Roosevelt National Park for a deep dive into all of the animals, creatures, and birds this park is known for. Other wildlife found in this park include white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, bobcats, longhorns, badgers, beavers, and porcupines. When it comes to the wildlife in Theodore Roosevelt National Park, the park management asks that you do the following three things. One, keep pets inside the car. They can scare wildlife. Two, do not use wildlife calls. That stresses wildlife out. And three, drive slowly on the park road. Remember that we are visitors to their spaces and that includes our cars, so driving slowly is a must. Theodore Roosevelt National Park is located amid the Great Plains. It is a park known for its grasslands. Do go listen to our trail 
Genomics, the Science of Grasslands for a deep dive into the benefits of grassland environments. Rolling hills, prairies, and occasional badlands are the majority of the land features here in Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Let's now take a look at the environment of this park and its relationship to climate change. One of the best animal groups to study when it comes to climate change is... Drumroll, please... Birds. I just want you to know that Dusty wrote this for me to say for him. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Because payback right. or... F- I don't know I if don't it's know. payback. I feel like you're making a false equivalent, mm. but I'll, I'll, oh, I'll okay. allow it. Oh, will you? I'll allow it. <laughs> Birds are a great source of information because they move from place to place and they are often seen and heard. If a new species of bird arrives in any given area, it is likely to be seen or heard by people and other animals. These make them great for study. In a study on birds in Theodore Roosevelt National Park, scientists looked at the rates of emissions if they continued to increase or if they began to lessen, and what kind of climate would it create for birds in Theodore Roosevelt National Park. There are over 185 bird species native to and that pass through Theodore Roosevelt National Park. This study found that the summer climate, with a continued trend of high emissions, would be either suitable, stable, or worse for many of the bird species, but found that it would not at all be suitable for 36 different bird types, which could, and this is their word, lead to extirpation, which means that 36 species of birds found in this park would either be forced to migrate out to try to find more suitable climate, or they would die off. Some of these species included in possible extirpation during summer climate include Canada geese, prairie falcons, wild turkeys, eastern screech owl, great horned owl, house sparrows, and golden eagles. Oof. Yikes! Yeah. Okay, so obviously we know that the earth is warming, and if we don't make a big change, we will get to a place by 2050 where it is real, real bad, and this is what this was measuring. If we make a change, then uh, that number was lower than 36. Mm -hmm. But if we don't, it's 36. Mm. And, like, y'all, the falcon, like population cannot deal with that you know what i mean they can't afford that is what i should say no no it's not good we in addition professor and researcher paul todd hunter of the university of north dakota fears an increase in tourism to the area near medora north dakota the town that abuts theodore roosevelt national park currently they are constructing the theodore roosevelt national library a project costing about a hundred million dollars the opening of the library would certainly increase tourism tourism would obviously create a strain on their resources yeah and add more emissions. Mm-hmm. Theodore Roosevelt National Park is also a major site for bison population. For a deep dive into the history and conservation of bison, go listen to our trail mix on buffalo. Buffalo or bison are also rapidly seeing the effects of climate change. In the article, Once Nearly Extinct, Bison Are Now Climate Heroes, published in the Washington Post, author Jess McHugh reports, quote, Bison suffer from the effects of climate change, too. Warming temperatures have caused bison to shrink, according to several recent studies. That's because climate change acts on the grasses they eat, reducing the protein content. One study found that for every one degree Celsius the temperature warmed, male bison weighed on average 20 pounds less. The climate is expected to warm by nearly three degrees Celsius by 2050, end quote. Woof. Ain't that, mm-hmm, ain't that something. Literally, the size of the animal is different literally because of climate change. Woof. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. So, everybody, we gotta, 
Yep. We, we got to get those corporations to stop mm-hmm. is what we got to do mm-hmm. because we're going to, we're going to keep doing our local thing. We're going to act locally and think globally, mm-hmm. but we do have to put the pressure on the corporations. Mm-hmm. And now let's look at Badlands National Park in the land also known as South Dakota. This is a desert park found within the Great Plains. This area was once the bottom of the Western Interior Seaway and is now covered in fossils, though no dinosaur fossils. Each different layer of the formations represents a different period of time and contains different types of fossils from the animals of that time. For more information about the science and history of the Badlands, listen to our Trail Mix episodes from this season, The Science of Badlands and Fossils of the Badlands. When it comes to the environment of the Badlands, there are many similarities to that of Theodore Roosevelt National Park, since both spaces contain badlands, grasslands, and desert. In the Great Plains, Badlands National Park consists mostly of prairie. A prairie is defined by a large open swath of grassland. Some prairies are tall grass prairies, some are short grass prairies. Badlands contain both and is considered a mixed grass prairie. A prairie is also known for its lack of trees. Why are there little to no trees in the area? The climate, the land, air, and rainfall of this area do not create sustainable conditions to grow trees, but do create circumstances to grow grasses. Thus, the Great Plains. This park certainly boasts its fair share of wildlife. While in Badlands, we saw bighorn sheep, cliff swallows, and golden eagles. It is also possible to see black-footed ferrets, prairie dogs, pronghorns, and more. We can't talk about Badlands National Park and climate change without talking about the 2017 tweet storm about climate change statistics that came from Badlands' Twitter account. During the time that 45 was in office, he often spouted misinformation on almost every topic, but particularly about climate change and science. During this time, four tweets came out of the Badlands National Park Twitter account that offered what seemed to be some real science about climate change. The since-deleted tweets caught a viral moment and the internet began lauding Badlands National Park, the climate hero we didn't know we needed. So, what did the tweets say? There were four, and they read the following. Tweet number one. The pre-industrial concept concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 280 parts per million. As of December 2016, it is 404.93 parts per million. Tweet number two. Today, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is higher than at any time in the last 650,000 years. Tweet number three. Flip side of the atmosphere, ocean acidity has increased 30% since the Industrial Revolution. Ocean acidification, hashtag climate, hashtag carbon cycle. Tweet number four. Burning one gallon of gasoline per puts nearly 20 pounds of carbon dioxide into our atmosphere. Thanks to the lovely folks at our favorite place, the Weather Channel. All of these tweets were fact-checked with climate experts, including NASA's top climate scientist, Gavin Schmidt, and they were all found to be correct. Turning our gaze to the Midwest, another park with incredible biodiversity and range is Indiana Dunes National Park. Located on the shores of Lake Michigan, this park is the product of many forces of nature, from glaciation... (laughs) From glaciation, David. (laughs) At the association. We're going to the association. The glaciation association. From glaciation to dune succession to the shifting winds, there's a lot to experience in a park of this magnitude. So what sort of habitats did we encounter within Indiana Dunes? Okay, well, obviously sand and like shore. Yep. But also wetlands and yeah, marsh. Yeah. And lake. Yeah. What surprised you? Bog. Well, I was shocked at how green it was. I was mm-hmm. shocked at the marshland and just like all of that. That was, I could not believe that. I think because we had seen great sand dunes, I think we were both expecting a similar experience. Just sand. Yeah, just sand. Or like sand along a shore. Yeah, yeah. Not what we got here. 
With its wide range, Indiana Dunes can claim that it is the fourth most biologically diverse park out of all of the parks in the national park system. Much of this is due in part to the incredible variety of plant life. Over 1,100 types of flowering plants make the park their home. From prairie grasses to bog plants to ferns, the dichotomy is massive. The park is really incredible because the environment constantly shifts. From the lakeshore to bogs to wetlands to prairie to forest. While the plant life in the park is extensive due to these rich and varied landscapes, the birding in the park is also unparalleled as there are at least 350 species of birds that inhabit or migrate through the park. So what sort of birds did we see here? So what birds did we see here? Yeah. I mean, I feel like um, the ones, I wasn't an active birder at the time, mm-hmm. but I feel like there were definitely um, sparrows. Absolutely. There were chickadees. There were blue We saw jays. those wild turkeys. There were turkeys. Definitely red-winged blackbirds mm-hmm. about. Robins. Crows, most certainly. I'm sure we heard some woodpeckers. Yeah. Canada geese. There are definitely some that I like would love to see if we went back. Mm-hmm. Like I'd love to see yellow warblers. Mm-hmm. I would love, I still haven't seen indigo bunting, even though they're around here too. Yeah. I know they're there as well. They also, because of their, because they're wetland, they have lots of different like, you know, water birds. Yeah. Like obviously they have great blue heron. Mm-hmm. We saw one of those. But they also have green heron, and it mm. would be great to see those as well. They also have bald eagles mm. and a lot of types of ducks. So I would like to see those as well. Some of the spaces that we visited in the park that are incredible for birding include Long Lake, West Beach, and Cowles Bog. Some birds that can be spotted in Cowles Bog include the American Woodcock, the Sorrel, and Virginia Rail. That's my drag name. <laughs> Virginia Rail. <laughs> While in the West Beach area of the park, you may be able to spot a hairy woodpecker. And Long Lake has a variety of waterfowl, including heron, which we apparently missed. With so much water within and around the park, the park plays host to a variety of amphibians, including toads, frogs, salamanders, and newts. So we saw a lot of these when we were in like the West Beach section. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that like kind of West Beach loop. Like the 9, 10, and 2 that we did? No, 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 no. Like the West Beach section of the National oh, Park. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like by Long Lake. We um, did see a lot clearly of... Clearly, that is something that is a big zone for them because obviously the the lake is there, The you know, the wetland is there. In regards to toads, there are two types to be found within the park, including the American toad and the fowler's toad, of which the park is at the most northwest end of its range. This toad is of a particular importance to the park, as these types of amphibians are an indicator species when it comes to the health of wetlands. This is especially important because of the ongoing efforts of the park to restore the Cowlsbog Wetland Complex, 205 acres of wetlands that are the western terminus of the Great Marsh. In the 1960s, nearby dunes were moved, which changed the habitat via a shift in water movement. This meant a slowly shifting ecosystem. The restoration of this ecosystem means a return of native species and the eradication of those that are invasive. This would further increase the health of the park and increase increased biodiversity within the park. This is no small undertaking either, as the park estimates for an area of this size, it may take 10 to 15 years to see the wetlands returned to their original splendor. However, studies have shown that the efforts already undertaken have yielded results by way of native species population growth. Obviously, a shifting global climate also has implications on the park, especially one at the edge of a large body of water. But while other parks may need to worry about sea level rise, Indiana Dunes actually has more to worry about by way of erosion. 
as rising water levels within the lake, which typically cycles every 30 years or so, and loss of ice in the wintertime will likely contribute to more erosion along the lake shore. And who's filled with dark information there? Oh, I mean, you always are. Mm-hmm. Always. The sources for this episode include the study Birds and Climate Change published by the National Park Service. The paper, Climate Change Assessment Using Spatial Climate Datasets, Theodore Roosevelt National Park, South Unit, 1895-2019, by Paul Todd Hunter. The article, Climate Change Puts Theodore Roosevelt in a Hot Spot, by Walter Criswell, published in the Colleges of Arts and Sciences at University of North Dakota. The article, Once Nearly Extinct, Bison Are Now Climate Heroes, by Jess McHugh, published in the Washington Post. The article, Bison Country, is Changing and Not for the Better, but the Future is Unwritten by Sammy Roth, published in the LA Times. The article's Effects of Climate Change at New River Gorge National Park and Preserve and Seeing the Forest Through the Trees Monitoring Programs Yields Insight into Forest Health in Bluestone, Gowley River, and New River Gorge by the NPS. The article As the Shoreline Eroded, One National Park Tries to Adapt by Zachary Green on PBS. The Indiana Dunes Climate Change Adaption Plan by Catherine Moore, Abigail Derby, and Douglas Stoltz. And the articles, The Kalsbog Restoration Project and Science and Nature by the NPS. And now, let's end this episode with a queen and a game. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage... Erin Out. Erin Out, yeah. Okay, so I feel like she's like, Erin Out. She's <laughs> German. She's a German queen. Okay, so who is Aaron Out? Aaron Out is um, Out sh- is a great last name. Mm-hmm. Um, Aaron Out is she is an atmosphere queen. Really, she's Aaron it out. Okay, Aaron Out. She's she is she's like a queen that's like oh if this atmosphere isn't great then expert. Ex- what is it? What are the birds? Extirpation. Extirpation is the name of my game. Interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. So is she like an evil villain drag queen? No, no. She's someone that's very concerned with the environment and the atmosphere and like levels of carbon in the atmosphere. Okay. And so she is, she's an air queen. Oh, she's, she's like, like a Gemini or a Libra or an Aquarius. I think she's a, she's a Libra. Mm. I think she's Libra. Because mm-hmm. she's there for justice. Justice and, you know, and has gone on a journey to find her own voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I do feel like she has like lots of sort of sheer like, oh, yeah. things floating. Aaron out. Maybe Aaron out moves through the air as yeah. like a... a an you know, acro queen? Like an acrobat queen? Yeah. An acro queen? Yeah. Like she has an acro crack. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say aggro. I said, <laughs> I mean, she's got an aggro crack. <laughs> right. She sure does. Um, No, like an acrobatic queen. I like it. Yeah. I feel like very much so Total Eclipse of the Heart is giving me like that sheer fabric. Doesn't like mm-hmm. Bonnie, it's Bonnie Tyler, right? Correct. Yeah. She's got, doesn't she have a lot of sheer fabric? Oh yeah. Like, and it's in like that, flowing it's like through billowing. the window yeah. and like also, the curtains. Also, all coming back to me now, Celine. Yes, yeah. That's a like very. Um, mm-hmm. That's an outfit that comes to mind for me. Yeah. Billowy. Okay. So something billowy and mm-hmm. like yeah. Yeah. Uh, big hair. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Great. Teased for the gods. God, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that very much. Yeah. Also, sort of like giving us. Um, I'm not Dana. I'm Zool vibes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. No yeah. Dana. Only Zool. Only Zool. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. What's her right. merch? 
that's a great question. Okay, what if they are air fresheners like that are made in her likeness? Okay, like yeah. you're hanging a little like an air and out in your in your space. And you're airing it out. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I like that. It. I like that. Great. So, but I do you- feel like she's a bird queen though too because she's of the oh, air. We're bringing a lot in here. I know, but I'm doing it for you. Um, so I feel Listen, like her air fresheners might be in the just, shape of birds. Mm, let's not include birds just to placate this queen on the couch. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Fine. Cut um, it out. Then. I think she she's got an outfit and like her air fresheners that evening, like whatever outfit she's wearing on stage okay. matches the Great. outfit she's got on on in the air freshener. I love that. Yeah. They're tiny little like voodoo doll versions of her. Mm. Maybe. Maybe not voodoo that scary. Doll. <laughs> but yeah. Sure. That size though. Mm-hmm. You know? Sure. Great. We went to some. <laughs> we did. So we went some weird places there. <laughs> she's like a tiny little Polly Pocket. Okay. That's what she's Polly like. Pocket. That's real tiny though. That's like. Okay. Maybe a little bit bigger than mm-hmm. Polly Pocket. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's like a miniature, miniature doll. Great. But she is an air freshener. I love it. Okay. Great. Great. So ladies and gentle thems, please welcome to the stage. Aaron out. Aaron out. Okay. Okay. So I have two games. Oh, look at me being treated. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two games. Are you ready for the first game? I am. The first game, it has five questions. Great. It's called Should You Touch the Wildlife? <laughs> the answers are all no. And um, I'm gonna give you five scenarios. And you have to give me um, your honest answer. No. And, or the best answer you can come up with on should you touch the wildlife <laughs> in this circumstance. Are you ready? The answers are all no. Here we go. <laughs> the first one. You see a rabbit hop across a trail and you want to quickly pet it and hold it up for a picture. Do you touch the wildlife? No. That is the correct answer. Uh-huh. No, you do not touch mm-hmm. the wildlife. Why? Because we don't touch wildlife. Because we don't touch wildlife. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, second one. Mm-hmm. You see a young deer sitting in the grass near the parking lot where your car is parked. It's quiet and it's adorable and you just want to pet the deer. You've never seen a baby deer before. Do you touch the wildlife? No. Why? Because we don't touch wildlife. Right. And also, let's elaborate. Because your scent will potentially cause this animal to be ostracized. That's right. Third. You are in Channel Islands, and one of those adorable little Channel Islands foxes walks up to you and sits on your shoe, and it wants some food. Do you touch the wildlife? Do you give it food? No, because feeding animals create a dependency on an, uh, on animals to believe that humans will give them food, and that is not always the case. Correct. Also, we just don't touch wildlife because it's not right. Right, mm-hmm. and it could... Injure them, stress them out, out. endanger them. Mm -hmm. Fourth one, you see an injured baby bear in the middle of a trail. It has a branch wedged into its paw and it's bleeding. Do you touch the wildlife? No, but you tell a ranger about it and let that ranger deal with that issue because you're not a trained professional. That is right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the fifth one, you are walking near a river and you see a baby bison swimming and it looks like it's struggling. Do you touch the wildlife? No, you let it. Let you let nature run its course. That's right. The wilderness chooses. The wilderness chooses. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now for um, we have a ten-part Jeopardy category Jesus, today. Jesus, you, you were. I was. Um, you were a cat at midnight. I when it came to trivia. I wanted to give you. I wanted to give you lots to work with. Today. Great. 
great. Because I adore you. But also disparage me at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. This is called National Parks of the Season Rebranded Rhyme Time. Great. Okay, so the answer will be one of the parks from the season, but um, one of the words is different and it rhymes. Mm -hmm. And it has been rebranded. Great. So, for 100. This national park from this season, if it were the birthplace of these small metal tools that can hold paper together by like putting them through and like stretching them behind okay they have a little button on the top yeah 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 oh my god it like went out of my head what it's called um hang on just wait hold hold please oh i'm not saying anything what is uh what's a paper fastener isn't it nope what is it called it has a bit of a broy name to it what is it brad Brad pin? Brad. Okay, Brad is correct. So uh-huh. put that in the title of what one is of the... Bradlands? There you go. Bradlands National Park. Okay. But it is a paper fastener is like the like generic nomenclature, I think, for it. Okay. Well, I mean, I will take your word for it because you are the um, printmaker. Oh, and also the memory keeper's daughter. And also the memory keeper's right. daughter. Mm-hmm. Did you hear me say in my own way that you were right? Yeah, I did. Great. And but did I wanted you take more. it and appreciate it? <laughs> I mean, sort of. Okay, great. For 200, this national park from the season, if it exclusively hosted balls from underground ballroom culture. What is Draglands? We were looking for what is Theodore Roosevelt's oh, national park. Great. For 300, <laughs> this national park from this season, if every time you visited, you felt frightened and your bottom lip began to tremble. What is New Quiver Gorge? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh God, yes. New what is New Quiver Gorge mm-hmm. National Park? For four hundred. This national park from this season, if it only contained large black birds that look like ducks. Large black birds that only that look like ducks. Yep. Are they also aquatic birds? Yep. They usually have red eyes. Oh. Um so it's loons. Am I struggling here? Indiana Loons National Park? That is correct. There we go. For 500, right? Yeah, sure. This national park from this season, if you were only allowed to wear Scottish kilts featuring tartans while visiting. So a tartan is what kind of? Flannel, like a plaid. Plaidlands National Park. There we go. I was like, Brogue? Highlands? (laughs) (laughs) The Moors? <laughs> For 600. This national park from this season, if it were a place to hear creative writing, that is not poetry. Oh, I don't know. Okay, well, if it's not poetry, then it's, it's probably... Prose, okay. Teddy Roosevelt National Park? That's right. Great. What is Theodore Roosevelt National Park? Theodore Roosevelt. Okay, for 700. This national park from this season, if... Visitors were constantly falling head over heels for the surprising marsh wetlands. What is Indiana Swoons National Park? That is correct. Indiana Swoons. For 800, this national park from this season, if when you visited, it were really cold and your body shook because of it. What is New Shiver Gorge? That's right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. For 900, this national park from this season, if it were covered in this blackbird, and if 
an in-character Moira Rose was the head ranger. <laughs> what is Teddy Crozevelt in National Park? That is Park? correct. That is correct. Mm-hmm. And finally. The Crows have eyes five. <laughs> that's right. This National Park from this season, if you were the head ranger. <laughs> um, what is Bad Girls National Park? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a better answer than what I have. So I think that should just be it. Uh huh. It was also. Was it based off of Badlands? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Can you guess what I did write down? What is Dadlands <laughs> National Park? <laughs> I don't know. No, I did have that as an original clue, mm-hmm. but no. What was it? <laughs> Your doom and gloom can't help you here? <laughs> what is Badlands National Park? No, no. What is Sadlands National Park? There you Park? go. What mm-hmm. is Sadlands National mm-hmm. Park? But I think Bad Girls National <laughs> <laughs> is the winner here. <laughs> If there ever was a winner. This has been the season five Bad Girl Summit <laughs> by Gaze uh, at the National beep, Parks, beep. the uh, podcast. Toot, toot. And we're uh, here to remind you that. Hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard, and bad girl Michael Ryan. <laughs> to see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at Gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com. To find out more about the parks visited on the show, visit our website, Gaze at the National Parks.com. That's Gaze, G A Z E. All original artwork featured on Instagram, on our website, and in the Gaze Shop is by me. Michael Ryan. All original music was written and performed by Dave Seaman and Mariella Klinger with Sean Slios on guitar. Our music producer is Skylar Fordgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode that we're on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey.